Victoria and Isaac. Glad God spared you, Isaac. Yeah, Genesis. <laughs> My turn. I love it. You did a great job. Thank you. Pleasant surprises and another hidden talent in our midst revealed. We're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews 8. Thanks for the musical accompaniment, Emery. I appreciate that, but my talents lie otherwise buried. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim with me the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. With this poor man in mind, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who chose a self-induced poverty, who became poor for us, let's consider, first of all, a working translation of Hebrews chapter 8. We've come after a long circle back to Hebrews chapter 8. And this continues in increment 239 of our study of Hebrews. And what I want to hit today, and it's going to be kind of a discourse or a discursive teaching, is the Christology beneath Hebrews 8, 1b. The Christology, the word about Christ. Nothing is more important in Colossians chapter 3.16 but letting the word of Christ, the word about Christ, the word from him, reside in your hearts plentifully, copiously. And that's what we're going to do and have been doing in our series called We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020, and hopefully with 2020 vision. I'm going to start today with the working translation of the entire chapter of Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. I'm not going to indicate the verse numbers. I'm just going to read it straight through with, a, with minimum commentary. Now, the summing up of what we're saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. You see, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this priest also have something to offer. In fact, if he were still on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since earthly priests are those who offer gifts prescribed by the law, which gifts serve as a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was instructed when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For God said, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. And for that, I refer you back to increments 224 and 226 on the true 10. Verse six, but he, now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a superior ministry that's, that's something of value to replace the ministry of the earthly priests of the Aaronic order. And with them, he is the mediator of a better covenant, 
which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Those promises we find in Jeremiah 31 to 31 to 34, which is quoted in these next few verses in their entirety. For if indeed the first covenant had been without fault, there would have been no reason to seek for a second one, for finding fault with it, your translation may say finding fault with them, the people, but it's actually he found fault with the covenant itself, which he replaces with the new covenant. So finding fault with it, the first covenant, God says to them, the old covenant community, look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. By saying new, he makes the first covenant obsolete. Now what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. Is this a finger pointing to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Quite possibly. But consider again, and this is our focal point today, Hebrews 8.1, the second part. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Of such significance. Because our great archpriest is the Son, S-O-N, to whom God the Father addressed the words, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. When David wrote that, he had no idea that the feet in question would be nail-scarred and that the Son will have been crucified and raised and exalted of such significance because this Jesus is the Lord. He is Yahweh himself to whom every knee will bow and every tongue pledge allegiance according to Isaiah 45, 23. And this is where Philippians 2, 5 through 11 comes in. I plan to do a pretty extensive exegesis of that within our study very soon also because it's a micro-apocalypse in its own right. Now, here's where I want to bring forth something that required a lot of precision. I'm, I'm very grateful for the men who've been teaching on Wednesdays. They've done a marvelous job. It's afforded me the opportunity to make some very precise cuts and make some very precise and accurate doctrinal points in my study. And that study is more intense now than I'll ever, so, and it's also more of a pleasure and a pain than ever. <laughs> but this is from a result of what I call the Christology beneath, the word about Christ beneath Hebrews 8, 1b. Jesus is truly God, truly man, truly God-man. Jesus is a divine person, but also a divine human. But not merely or simply a human person like us, per se. Hence the likeness, the word likeness in the statement 
in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, being in the form of God, he assumed the likeness, that's homoiomati in the Greek, the likeness of human persons, of men, or became, we could say, like purely human persons, simply human, merely human persons. But he wasn't merely human when he assumed the human nature. He was purely divine and human, as we're going to see. And this is a fine division of the word of God that requires a lot of attention, and this, the attention I'm giving it today. Perhaps I'm not like other pastors because I'm giving you a theology class, <laughs> Christology class on Sunday morning, but without apology. So when he assumed the likeness or became like the purely human person, having a human appearance, it says in Philippians 2.7, means that from the moment of the incarnation, he was a divine and human person, having both true humanity and true divinity in inseparable and inconfusable union. One thing that was truly developed and thankfully developed in the Council of Chalcedon in 313 AD was that the two natures of the one person was established as a solid doctrine for the church forever, without confusion, without separation, without division, and without change were the four negations of that council. So from the moment of the incarnation, he was a divine and human person, having both true humanity and true divinity in inseparable and inconfusable union. Assuming human nature, he had and still has a human body. As Hebrews 2.14 puts it, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same, blood and flesh, in that order, in that case. Though God the Son became a partaker of the same blood and flesh of a purely human person, he did not cease to be God. He did not st stop being and living in the divine essence as he partook of human essence in, in a union of natures without separation, without confusion, without change, without division. His life as the God-man was from the moment of his inhumanization, one life. The life of the God-man in which all of his actions were and are what we've been calling theandric actions. Theandric. Not the first one to use this term, but comes from theos and andros. God and man. Anthropos is the other word for man, so we could say theanthropic action. So since his incarnation, which was also an inhumanization, everything he did was theandric action. And I have much to explain about that. One life, the life of the God-man, in which all his actions were and are still now theandric actions performed as God and man. The life of the God-man in which all his actions were and are theandric actions can be seen throughout the days of his flesh, as Hebrews 5.7 calls it. As we see Jesus in the gospel narratives and how important that is. His action of kicking over the money tables 
in the temple complex was theandric action. His act of weeping at Lazarus' grave and at the fate of Jerusalem was theandric action, the action of the God-man whose union of two natures was inseparable, unchangeable, inconfusable, indivisible. His passion of suffering in Gethsemane and Golgotha was undergone as a theandric passion. Not only as man, while his deity remained aloof or in heavenly bliss, no, but as the God-man. And he bore the incomprehensible burden of the sins of the world, not only as a human being, not only as a divine being, but as a divine human being, a person, a single individual subject of actions and of passions, and the object of the hostility, the betrayal, the brutality of sin-controlled humanity. The single, singular person, Jesus, can be said to be a human being in every way except for sin. Was he affected by sin? Did he come into a world under sin? Yes. Was he affected by sin? Yes, the sin of others, the hostility of others the brutality of others. For when push comes to shove, God always reveals who's out for themselves and who is a true servant of God. He's a divine being in every way, and so not just a human person. The reason it says in the likeness of human persons is because we are purely human persons and not divine and human. And he is divine and human. With the likeness of all the rest of us. He took on our likeness because it was always God's intention to make us in the likeness of God. So he may be called and is a divine human person. His likeness to human persons is limited in that he's like us and yet not like us. He is like us in the partaking of blood and flesh. He is not like us in our sinfulness. Though as one who knew no sin, he was made to be sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus endured the cross not as a mere human person and not just in his humanity as some try to make a false distinction. He didn't experience that endurance of the cross only in his humanity while his divinity was in heaven, in bliss, aloof, indifferent, not experiencing this. He did not experience this passion, this suffering, this unspeakable suffering, which a mere human person would have been incapable of enduring in his humanity as opposed to his divinity. Jesus endured the cross as the God-man, as the divine and human person in whom the two natures of humanity and divinity are united without separation, without confusion, without change, and without division. Now, if this same divinity in Jesus is in the Father and the Spirit, then the Father and the Spirit endured the cross in their own way, endured this death in their own way, as I'm going to show you. You can't separate Christology from the doctrine of the triune God. We can't divide or separate his natures. 
and legitimately say things like, he asked where Lazarus' dead body is. Where have they laid him, he said. Well, he asked that only in his humanity, not his divinity. But did we forget that he limited his divinity in the kenosis? So we can't say things like, well, he asked where Lazarus' dead body was placed only in his humanity because his divinity knew where Lazarus' body was. That's not true. The kenosis in Philippians 2, 7, and 8 was the self-humiliation of divinity. He asked where they placed Lazarus' body as the God-man. In fact, before God was even embodied, he asked Adam, where are you? And when Jesus spoke and muzzled the storm, a hurricane, essentially, which Peter and the others thought would kill them, screaming out, Lord, we perish. And I have to say that I've faced a couple situations in my life where I said the same thing. Well, obviously, now you're taking me home. And when Peter and the others thought they would, this storm would kill them, he simply spoke and muzzled the storm, calmed it. He didn't speak this and do this calming of a deadly storm only as divinity while his human nature was dormant and simply watched his divine nature act. No, he spoke and calmed the storm, creating a great calm out of a great storm as the God-man the one who can rightly be called the second man in 1 Corinthians 15, the son of man in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and who was correctly addressed by Thomas, my Lord and my God. So it can be said that in the God-man, all the fullness of the divine essence resides. So that it can also be said that as this God-man, who is the son of man and the second representative man, that all of human essence resides in him. Colossians 2.9 says, all that can be called divinity, the theotetus, all of the Godhead resides in him bodily. If all of divinity resides in him bodily, there's another sense where all of humanity resides in him bodily. We're assuming humanity, and some of the patristics understood this. He assumed humanity of one subject named Jesus, but he also assumed all of human nature and therefore took human nature, having passed through death, burial, and resurrection into the exalted presence of heaven. So as it can be said that this God-man, in this God-man, all the fullness of the divine essence resides, so it can also be said that of this God-man, who is the son of man and the second representative man, that all of human essence resides in him. That in assuming humanity, he took into himself not only human essence as a single individual man, but all of human essence, period, per se. This is he who is seated at the right hand of the eternal majesty, in the highest district of heaven, above all the heavens. This is the one who is our great arch priest. This is Jesus, whom we see with the eyes of our enlightened heart. This is our great arch priest. And if indeed the tent can be identified with his flesh, his body, as we suggested in increments 224 and 26, then the tent consists in another sense 
of all human flesh, all the human essence, into which the one with the form of God entered when he became flesh in order to become sin, in order that we would become the righteousness of God in him. And by we, I mean the world of humanity. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. In Jesus, there is the totality of the divine essence, even though the divine essence belongs equally, totally, to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. In him, in Jesus, also is the totality of the human essence so that the, word, the whole of the human essence has been brought into the triune God in him. Though only one hypostasis or person of the triune God actually became flesh and was incarnated and inhumanized, as the old scholars used to call it, inhumanized. When Jesus acted as we see him acting in the gospel accounts, he acted not only as the God-man, but he acted in perfect concert with the Father and the Spirit, who also in their own way experienced the death of the cross. A man who loses his son in death does not die. The son died, but the father certainly experiences the death of his son with a grief that is almost incomprehensible. Imagine, therefore, the grief of the, spot of the father and of the eternal spirit. The Bible even talks about grieving the Holy Spirit who has sealed us until the day of the redemption of our bodies, which is the radical alteration of the human condition on the way, coming soon. So according to Romans 8.3, another central passage, along with Philippians 2.7 on this matter, God sent his own divine and eternal son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Homa. Homoomati, again, same word. Obviously not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's humanity like us, persons under sin. But Jesus was without sin. He did no sin, knew no sin by the experience of committing it, or by omitting any responsibility given to him by God his Father. He was free, utterly free. From the evil action of the pride of man. And from the evil inaction of the sloth of man. The scripture never says that Jesus became a human person with sinful flesh as such, but that the Son of God, a divine person, assumed the likeness of a human person. He really became flesh. He really became a partaker of real flesh and real blood while remaining a divine person. Jesus, whom we see with the enlightened eyes of our heart, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, because of the suffering of death, Hebrews 2, 9 to 10, in which he tasted death for everyone, is and always was and will be a divine person. Since his incarnation, however, he is a divine person, a divine man with a human nature without sin and sinfulness. Even though we can't say with accuracy that Jesus is just, meaning only, merely, or simply a human person, 
we can say that he is the man, Christ Jesus. We can even say that he's a divine human person. He is the God-man. He is a divine person who acted humanly and a man who acted divinely. Notice that we do not call him the man-God, but the God-man. We don't call him the man-God as if humanity had priority over divinity. He's not the man-God as if somehow a man became God. He is not man who became God, but God who became human while remaining God. He is not a man who became God and then shucked his humanity, ceasing to be a man. He is God who became flesh and became a man. This man, without shucking his divinity, without ceasing to be God, is Jesus. Neither is Jesus half man and half God, like the demigods of mythology with some but not all the powers of a god. Jesus is all God and all man. He is all God with all of God's power and attributes And he is all man. In fact, in one sense, he is all men, all human beings. For in assuming human nature, the eternal word, the eternally begotten son of God, consubstantial, as they say, with the eternally begetting father. Assume the nature of all humans. So when we say the eternal word assumed human nature, we're not saying that he put on the human nature like a coat, which he could equally take off. He took human nature into himself is a little better way of saying it, though it's still better to say that he, God who always was and never became He never became as God. He was always eternally God. He never became God, but was et- eternally was, is, and will be God. But it can be said that God, who was always God, always will be, always was, never had a moment of becoming as God, that God actually became flesh. The only way that could be put into words was the way it was put into words in the prologue of the Gospel of John. There was no other way of saying it than the way John said it. And the word became flesh. So never is there the word become attributed to God until God, who never became, became flesh. So in John 1.14, the verb Amy is ascribed to the word to denote his eternal existence in the essence of divinity. In John 1.14, the eternal word is the subject of the verb yinomai, to become, egenito. So the God who did not become God became flesh, and becoming flesh, that's incarnation, became human, that's inhumanization. Now follow this. This is all going to be in a PDF form and maybe printed there. Last week's is actually printed out on the information table as well as on PDF form. So When I do this, I realize that there's not full comprehension, maybe, but that's why we put it in writing as well as in 
double speed for people in a hurry like me and single speed and for those who are masochistic, it's even on DVD. Now, as Paul says, and this is a new advance, we're kind of kicking into a new gear. As Paul says, not all flesh, sarks, is the same. There is one flesh for humans, another flesh for domesticated animals, another flesh for birds, still another for fish. That's 1 Corinthians 15.39. There's reasons why Paul said that, and it's extraordinarily interesting why he did. But here's what we derive from this. It's obvious that the God, that God, the eternal word, did not become the flesh of domesticated animals or wild animals, nor did he become the flesh of a bird or a fish. But the scripture does say in John 1.14, the word became flesh. And not that the word became man. Not there. Though the word became human flesh, not fish flesh, bird flesh, oxen flesh, leopard flesh, he became human flesh. Now, perhaps the scripture says flesh there to indicate that in assuming human flesh, God intended the word to redeem all of created reality and not just human beings. We're reminded that after the city of Nineveh was saved through Jonah's preaching, Yahweh told his sulking prophet. Here's a guy who's sulking because he really doesn't like the idea of the salvation of evil people. A lot of that going around today. Can't accept that doctrine of God saving everybody because that means he saves really bad people. People that are not like me. He saves people that are not like me. That's right. But people are only as bad as they can be, as they have opportunity to be. And I'm sure that if you had the opportunity to be evil, and it was to your own good, your own perceived good, you would have been as evil as the worst evil person you ever can imagine in history. That's a little, the preacher in me comes out once in a while, but... What did he say to the sulking prophet? He said, shouldn't I be concerned with 120,000 people who don't even know their left from their right and also all their animals? Jonah 4.11. Very telling. God told his sulking prophet, shouldn't I be concerned about the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their left from their right as well as all the animals? There are, of course, many significant parallels between Jesus and Jonah. Both men were grieved to the point of death albeit for much different reasons, Jonah 4.9, Mark 14.34. And as Jesus himself said, for just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, Matthew 12.40. In any case, Jesus became human flesh to redeem all flesh to redeem all created reality. That's signaled by John 1.14. Moreover, if a man is a microcosm of the universe, and that can be demonstrated all over the place, how much more does the Son of Man contain the entire universe in himself? As he screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
he was identifying with the screaming, groaning creation. So Jesus, whom we see with the enlightened eyes of our heart, Ephesians 1.18, is a divine man. He's the only divine man. The man Christ Jesus, who is the only mediator between God, all of God, and man, all of humanity. The only mediator between holy God and all sinful human persons because he's a divine person who assumed a human nature just like ours except for sin. And he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him, which is what we already are, though we don't know it and certainly don't demonstrate it yet. God, the eternal son, took on, or we can say assumed, a human nature without ceasing to be divine and without ceasing to be a divine person so that all human persons would become partakers of the divine nature without becoming divine persons and without ceasing to be human persons. This is the way that the triune God assumes all of humanity into fellowship with the three divine persons. He who is the only mediator between God and humanity as the God-man is also the everlasting high priest, not just for Israel, but for all of humanity in all of its times. This is the kind of archpriest. This is the kind of archpriest that we have and that the world has. It's vital that we understand that not only is Jesus the God-man a partaker of the human essence, but that he is also one of the three hypostases, persons. Another word, really hypostasis is another word for person, a subject. He is one of three hypostases of the triune God, which I abbreviate this way in my notes, TTG, the triune God. Jesus is not only a partaker as the God-man of the human essence, but he's also one of the three hypostases of the triune God, and that all of divinity is in him as it is in all three hypostases or persons of the triune God. However, in him, all of divinity, all of the Godhead exists, somaticos, bodily speaking, in a bodily form, a human bodily form. Colossians 2.9, if you want us. Specific reference. Only God the Son, the Son of God, the eternal word, who was and is and always was and is with God and was and is and always will be God, became incarnate. Not the Holy Spirit, not the Father, only the Son. All of the divine essence is in him bodily as all of human essence is in him as his Body, capital B-O-D-Y, his corporate body, of which it can even now be said, in this body of Christ, Christ is all and in all. And that's just a preview of God being all in all. Because God, who is pleased to dwell in his human son, is pleased to dwell in all things when all things dwell in his son. All the divine essence is in him bodily, as all human essence is in him as his body. We see Jesus in this way. Now maybe once we saw him only as he's depicted in the Gospels and as he's portrayed in movies or televised series. 
But because of Hebrews, we see Jesus as this great archpriest at the right side of the eternal Father in heaven, comprising all of divinity and all of humanity in himself. Having taken the entirety of the human essence through death, through burial, through resurrection, to an exaltation at the right hand of the eternal heavenly majesty. At God's right hand, the God-man is upholding and sustaining the heavens and the earth. Just doing a little thing like sustaining the universe. Not as God only, not as man only, but as the God-man. Can we say that a man is, is sustaining the universe right now? Yeah. The God-man. Can we say that God is upholding all things? Yeah. How about Hebrews 1.3? Having made purification for sins, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heavens where he upholds all things by the word of his power. Who does that? Is a man sustaining the universe? Yeah. The God-man. Is a man controlling history? Yeah. The God-man. This is how we seek the Lord and find, and we find that he delivers us from all our fears. So people get excited about a series in which you see Jesus, about the movie Jesus of Nazareth or the Passion of the Christ, and we see these because we see Jesus. But it's only Hebrews that lets me see him in the way I'm talking about right now as upholding and sustaining the heavens and the earth with a view to making all things new. We see Jesus in this way. Maybe once we saw him only as depicted in the Gospels. And by the way, that's not what Paul meant when he said, once I knew Christ after the flesh. It doesn't mean he knew him only after the Gospels. It means Paul only knew him in a way that people know that is insufficient to know him. We'll be getting into that in another micro-apocalypse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. So all of the divine essence is in him bodily, as all of human essence is in him in his body. As his body, we see Jesus in this way. Jesus as the great archpriest at the right side of the eternal father. Comprising all of divinity and all of humanity in himself. Having taken the entirety of the human essence through death. Through resurrection. To exaltation at the right side of the eternal majesty. Does this make me a mystic to believe this? Then I am a mystic. A Christian mystic. At God's right hand, the God-man is upholding and sustaining the heavens and the earth with a view to making all things new. The one on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He does this as the theandric action, not merely or simply as God, not merely or simply man, but as the God-man. Such a person is our great archpriest. So if he can say, where have they laid Lazarus' body? If at the same time he said, I drive out demons by the finger of God. Why? Because God's finger is my finger. <laughs> if he limits himself and humbles himself to such a phenomenal degree that he can ask in his divinity and humanity in one indivisible person, where did they lay Lazarus' body? Then on the other hand, we can see the same God-man raised from the dead, exalted and glorified, sustaining the universe, holding everything together, Colossians 1.17 says, tapanta, Invisible, invisible universe. We know, the visible universe is enough to blow your mind when you look at it through the James Webb telescope, as we can now. What about the invisible universe? 
And what about them together? And what about holding them together in a systemic cohesion? What about taking all the chaos and the tohu wabohu of chaotic history and bringing it into a new creation where there's perfect order and where righteousness is at home and peace? Who does that? God does that. God's not like a man leaving things out. Leaving people out. So the God, that God the Son, came to be in the likeness of human persons corresponds to the triune God's decree. Let us make man in our own image. Genesis 1.26. Christ himself is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Colossians 1.15. He was the image of God in an anthropic form before he became flesh. Ezekiel saw visions of God, and the vision of God that he saw was first wheels within wheels, and then wheels holding up a platform, and angels on four corners holding up the corner, the four corners of that platform. On that platform is a chariot throne. On that throne is one with the form of a man above. He's a man, but he's above man. And he has the radiance of Yahweh. He is the radiance of Yahweh. He had the anthropic form before he became flesh. He had the theanthropic form before, before he became a human in the likeness of sinful flesh through incarnation. That's what blows my mind about Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28. And guess who gets that? Men called Merkabah mystics. The Merkabah mystics meditated on Ezekiel's vision until they saw the throne of God. I can't say that I saw it like Ezekiel saw it, but it's enough to rivet my soul. That God the Son came to be in the likeness of human persons corresponds, therefore, to God's original intent to make mankind in our image and likeness. Christ himself is that image in 2 Corinthians 4.4 and Colossians 1.15. He, the image of God, Akon, is God who came to be in the likeness of human persons. So God making man in his own image is achieved through God becoming in the likeness of human beings. The image of God, Christ, is God who came to be in the likeness of human persons so that human persons could be made in the likeness of God. For as we gaze, and that's why we're doing this, this is why churches are churches. As we gaze into the mirror of the word at the Lord's image, we are being changed, changed into his image from one degree, one increment to the next. This is the account given of the new covenant community, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, 6, the account of the new covenant community. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, 6. It must be recalled that the eternal word, also known as the eternally begotten Son of God, consubstantial, that is of equal essence with the eternally unbegotten and begetting Father, and consubstantial of equal essence and divinity with the eternally spirated Holy Spirit, that Jesus always bore the anthropic image of God into which humankind would be made for among Ezekiel's visions of God, 1-1 of Ezekiel, the prophet saw an enthroned one with the form of a anthropos, ano, a man above, who is also the very radiance of Yahweh. Well, Hebrews 1-2 says, God has spoken in these last days in his son who is the radiance of his glory. 
So again, I'm hinting at and warning you about Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and I'm going to be moving to a closure here. God's coming to be in the likeness of merely human persons is seen in a most memorable context, I think, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This passage has remarkable affinity and even a kind of synchronicity and synergy with Hebrews. Hebrews 2. Here's a brief working translation with minimum comment. Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude, this mentality and intentionality toward one another that Christ had, who, though eternally existing in the existential form, that's morphe, which means that Christ changed not the unchangeable nature, but the changeable form. Of divinity. Have this attitude toward one another that Christ had, though who, though eternally existing in the existential form of God, didn't consider his equality with God something to hold on to, something to grasp at all costs, meaning costs to you and me. Instead, he divested himself and became truly a slave, coming to be in the likeness Homo, um, homo omati of human persons and was found in outward appearance schema or schemati as a man found in outward appearance as a man that means like a human person though he was not a mere human person meaning only human person but a divine person who had assumed a human nature who became flesh in John 1 14 verse 8 he lowered himself this is the self humiliation of the son of God becoming obedient to the extent of the death of the cross for this reason Because he lowered himself, because he became obedient in the form of a slave to the Father's all-saving will, God also highly exalted him. Notice who performs the action of humiliation, himself. He humbles himself. Notice who performs the acts of exaltation. God the Father exalts him. The Son of God enters into an unspeakable self-humiliation. The self-humiliation of the Son of God before he even endures the cross is too unimaginable for us to grasp. I was talking to Pam about this because I was totally mind blown by this thing and I said we can't compare it like we used to when I was a little kid I said it's kind of like me looking down at all the ants building an anthill and I want to become an ant to help the ants it's not like that at all first of all if I was going to become like one of the ants I'd have to be a ant man a man with the form of an ant and an ant who's also got the form and of a humanity. Second, in becoming an ant, I'd eventually have to be destroyed by those ants to save them. And so there's no, there's no, we can't, there's no analogy, there's no comparison that you can do here. This is, it's impossible to relate on any levels. Just like you can't do with the Trinity, you can't, there's not really an analogy that works to explain the triune God, the mystery of the triune God. We can try it, we do it all the time for kids, but nothing cuts it. It's just just unimaginable. God also highly exalted him. And so the Son of God humiliated himself. The Son of Man is exalted by God. So God exalted him and attributed to him, that is the man, Jesus, the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in the heavens, on earth and under the earth would bow, and every tongue acknowledge that the Lord, that's Yahweh, is Jesus, Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. 
And so this will lead to a more thorough exegesis of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. The Christology I just gave you this morning, and I'm almost done, is going to help us exegete Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which in itself is an apocalypse. It's, an, it's a micro-apocalypse. And we come face to face with it. So it's to be re-emphasized as we close that our great archpriest at God's right hand in the heavens, having made purification for sins. That's the sins of the whole world. Is now upholding the universe. In Hebrews 1.3. Which God brought into being through him. For nothing was made that ever came, was made that was made without him. And that he's controlling history in the sense that he is bringing everything that happens in the course of history to a redemptive conclusion. Now, even now in history, did you know that evolution has been discredited completely? but that the publication of works that demonstrate it are not allowed to be published in the heart and center of academia for some reason? Did you know that the whole Freudian philosophy of psychoanalysis has been so discredited that it's not even a philosophy worth thinking of for five minutes? Did you know that Carl Jung, his greatest student, was a neo-Gnostic and is responsible for a neo-Gnosticism which has displaced the true Christ in our world today? And that's why people are so effed up. By that I mean fouled up. Don't know who they are at the very basic level of things. It can be demonstrated. It, it, did you know that the, the things that even the highest physicists like Einstein proposed and all the credit, the things that we hold dear from Galileo onward is discredited now in, not because they weren't great theories perhaps in their own right at first and Darwin never did this to prove evolution. He even wrote it in his writings. He didn't prove, want to do that to prove evolution either in its macro or its micro sense. Now, I'm, I'm only saying that as a sweeping way, and you're going to say, well, you're just a dumb preacher. You don't know what you're talking about on these areas. Well, I've, ne- I've read enough on those areas to know that the word of God that we're proclaiming is toppling strongholds, even Einsteinian theory strongholds, that once were held up against the knowledge of God. Wolfgang Smith, whose book I just finished on the cosmos, went so far as to say that Carl Jung's whole goal was to destroy Christianity. He had nine pastors in the family, eight uncles and his father who went bananas and went insane as a pastor. And I would have gone insane as a pastor if I hadn't discovered the insights I have. I'm, I'm the to- sum total of the insights I've found in these past years, or I'd have been insane too. And so he tried to displace Christ from his throne and place the human self and Satan on the throne. He said it was his goal actually to make Satan the adversary a fourth hypostasis in the quaternity instead of the trinity of God. And it's the philosophy of life and religion that he influenced that we hold dear today in the cult of the worship of the self. That's how important it is. And you see churches being sold. Oh, we got to sell that church, turn it into a bar, turn it into a tavern, turn it into this, turn it into a fitness center. Why? Because the church hasn't made these things clear. The church hasn't been the place where the demolition of these things is brought down. The next generation is going to have to do it and preach the word that does it. So in closing again, just thought I'd drop a couple of bombs before I leave. Don't worry, it won't turn into a nuclear Armageddon. (laughs) 
Maybe I'm amazed. No, not maybe. In the present world, the prevailing religion is the worship of the self. And therefore, this is largely forgotten that the man, the God-man, is bringing everything that ever happens in this universe and history as an offering to the Father, which results in a new creation. Because this is largely forgotten, people live in fear of an ecological apocalypse or nuclear Armageddon, which will eradicate the human race and forever destroy the planet. But Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think of that. The same Jesus who yesterday, in his theandric action, wrought miracles, healed thousands, drove out demons by the finger of God, all actions which pointed to the new creation, who calmed the lethal storm, who showed his lordship over the Sabbath, who cleansed the temple complex, who endured the cruel hostility of sin-controlled people, who endured the unimaginable burden of the sins of the world in order to carry them away, who arose from the dead, who spoke kindly to Mary in the garden, who charged his disciples to preach the good news everywhere and assured them he would never leave them, who ascended into the highest reach of heaven and sat down enthroned next to the Father in incomparable majesty. This same Jesus today upholds the universe by his theandric action. In him all things are held together in a systemic cohesion. And through him all of creation will realize its emancipation when he comes. And he is coming. He will appear a second time with salvation, Hebrews 9.28 says. As surely as the sun arose this morning and will rise again tomorrow, the sun of righteousness will arise over the universal creation with healing in his rays. The thing about that metaphor of the son of God as the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness is not only that the sun has life and light and gives life and light to all the earth. But what really strikes me about the sun of righteousness arising is that it's certain to happen. Certain that it will arise, just that it is certain that Jesus our Lord will come and that every eye will see him as every knee will genuflect to him. Every tongue acknowledge Yahweh as Yeshua, Jesus. It is with profound reverence, therefore, in closing, and inner trembling even at this reality, that we demonstrate our obedience as we trust and obey by allowing the salvation that we already have to be made effective in our present lives in this time in between his appearance to put away sin and his appearance without sin to bring salvation to a groaning creation. Thank you, Father.